1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 10 to 20. You are witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe, as you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans, who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, and have persecuted us. And they do not please God, and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles, that they may be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time, in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again. But Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. As the grass withers and the flowers fade, God's holy inerrant word endures forever. May he bring his blessing. Well, just to reflect and to remember this particular chapter and this letter is dealing with a young church as it is growing up in a very hostile place. And here in particular in chapter 2, Paul is dealing with what is genuine gospel ministry as it is reflected in the minister laboring amongst God's people, but as well as it impacts the congregation and how they conduct themselves before this world. It is no secret that we are a people belonging to the kingdom of God who will indeed face persecution and hardship and opposition. And how we respond to that is to be a reflection not of the kingdom of this world or of Satan or of powers and principalities around us, but of the kingdom of God. And genuine gospel ministry is to be reflected in that and how we serve. We have seen thus far that genuine gospel ministry requires courage. And thankfully it is the courage of God that we are given and that we stand in by his spirit. God always provides for us what he says we need to exercise and to do. Uh, we also saw it was gentleness and blamelessness. And we looked last week, particularly at verse 13, and how the word of God is to be received by us and welcomed into our hearts and also is, if you will, that foundation for genuine gospel ministry. How we serve our God. You know, we always talk about marks of the church and 
We're familiar with uh, the Belgic Confessions, three marks of a true church being the preaching of the word and the administration of sacraments and, and of uh, the exercise of discipline. Uh, some of you are mu- much less familiar with the Westminster's three marks of a more or less faithful church. It's worded a little differently because we're all the church of Christ, we who call upon the name of the Lord, whether we're Pentecostals or Arminians or Baptistic in our theology or Presbyterian in reform. There is one church of Christ and the marks of the church in the Westminster are in accordance with how the doctrines of the gospel are more or less preached and accepted by the congregation, as well as the administration of the sacraments and how the worship of God is performed more or less purely. You see, slightly different in those marks. Some would say evangelism is one of the marks of the church. And I would agree with that, that there are more than just three marks of a genuine church of Jesus Christ. But here Paul is opening us up to another mark, another mark of true gospel ministry, another mark of the church, and that is opposition from the world. And I choose that word opposition because the word persecution, particularly as it's used here, is in relation to killing or bringing to an end the life of one who follows Christ. There are many words that speak to the issue of opposition. We're going to be looking at three of them, suffering and persecution, and as you uh, see there, hatred. Uh, But there's other words, tribulation, affliction, and they're all words that describe different aspects of that opposition that we receive from the world, that hostility and enmity that Satan strives to weigh upon the church and using the unbelieving world and using even religious groups who can in their own minds be thinking that they are serving God while they oppose the gospel. We have much of that today within the realm of what we would call mainline Christianity where they have taken up the ways and philosophies and vanities of the world and they oppose and resist those who are promoting the true gospel. It's there all around us. And and what do you have to understand, dear Christians? Far from being unusual, God here makes it clear, and not only in this passage, but in many other passages, that this opposition comes from your union with Christ and your union to his church. If you belong to Christ, you are going to experience it. And you will all experience it in differing levels and, and manners. But God has set it as part of your union with his son, part of your belonging to that body of the Lord. But it's also, as as it flows from verse 13, we're looking at verses 14 to 16, as this opposition is brought out to us, it also flows from the evidence of God's word working in your heart. 
One of the ways that you can know that you have received the word of God is when you start to believe it, you start to practice it, and you start to experience opposition from others who think it contrary to the nature of society and the world that we live in. But that's the evidence. God is transforming you. And that gospel of Christ, and by gospel what we mean is that saving grace of God provided for us in the atonement and righteousness of Jesus Christ that is received by faith alone. That gospel will transform you. And in transforming you, it will inevitably bring you into opposition with the unbelieving world. And dear Christians, if you have not laid hold of that truth, if you have not prepared yourself for that, you're going to flounder. This is why God brings it to us in so many ways. It's the costly nature of being a disciple of Christ. And when it comes, it is also something that divides the true believers from the false believers. The parable of the four soils. Jesus made that clear. And again, in connection with verse 13, if you were to look at Matthew 10, verse 34 to 39, Jesus says there, he says, I do not think that I have come to bring peace. I have come to bring a sword. A sword in such a manner that will bring division even within households. Divisions between husband and wife, parent and child, siblings. You think about that nature of God's word being a sword. Many of you, I'm sure, know Hebrews 4 verse 12. It says that the word of God is what? It's living, it's powerful. The word of God has to be living as it reflects Christ and as it's exercised in the Holy Spirit. It can't help but be living and powerful. And it is sharper than any two-edged sword. Now think about that when Jesus says, I've come to bring a sword in relationships. Where the word of God becomes that living, powerful sword that pierces and not only works in our own heart to deal with our own inward man that needs to be transformed, but it also deals with how we look, think, and act in this world and how we stand in contrast to those who don't belong to the kingdom of God. That costly nature of discipleship will come out When the sword of Jesus comes in, it can't be helped. It will test your love for Christ. As Jesus says in Matthew 10, uh, verse 34 to 39, it will test your love for him. It will bring a cross for you to bear. It will prove the genuineness of your faith. And all of that comes out as you meet with opposition. I believe that that point of opposition is one of the most difficult for us as Christians to bear. Is we don't want to necessarily experience that 
enmity with the world, but we also don't want to lose friends and family of the sort. And, and, and before us here in verses 14 to 16, I think what Paul is doing is setting before us what I call the theology of opposition. The theology, if you will, of what embodies the hostility and the enmity that the world has against the gospel. What I ask you to think on as you hear this is, are you ready for it? Do you prepare yourself every day for that potential enmity of the world and of those who do not lay hold of and believe the gospel that will meet you? And as well, when we hear these things, to, to encourage you in your own heart how you think on God in the midst of that opposition. That's preeminent. Where does our mind go in respect of God and what is occurring to us? And the first thing we see here with verse 14 is that preparedness that we must have to endure suffering. Suffering is one aspect of opposition from the world. Suffering. Are you ready to endure that suffering? In verse 14, Paul says there, you brethren became imitators of the churches of God. How were they imitating the churches of God? You also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans. To imitate the church of God is to suffer from even your own countrymen. And we don't think of that when it comes to imitating, do we? But it's enduring suffering. That word suffering, the Greek word, I don't always do Greek lessons, but this is one I think that will help us to draw it to Jesus. It's the Greek word paschal. Paschal. Uh, that, that word means to experience hard and shameful things. To, to suffer in a way where you are feeling shame meeting you. And it's hard to endure. Kind of like a person in in school, per se, who begins to be bullied by another person who's bigger than them. But it's being done in the front of other people. And you're being mocked and ridiculed. You're suffering. You're experiencing a shameful event. But that word for suffering, Paschal, is very closely related to another word that talks about Jesus Christ and who he is as the Lamb of God. And that word is Pascal. The difference is Pascal is got an O and it's a verb. Pascal has an A and it's a noun. The suffering Lamb. We read that in 1 Corinthians 5, 7 where Paul speaks of Christ our Passover. Christ the Paschal Lamb, the Lamb who suffered, was sacrificed for us. And, and Jesus takes and he owns this very word, 
suffering. He takes that to himself. If you were to look at Luke 24, verse 46, Jesus expressing to his disciples who are hiding away in fear of the opposition of the world, on that morning of his resurrection, Jesus comes and meets them in that closed locked room, and he has to explain to them, Luke 24, verse 46, how it was necessary for the Christ to suffer. It's the same word. It was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise the third day. You know, as often as Jesus told that to his disciples, as he was making his way to Jerusalem to be crucified, three different times it's recorded in Luke and in Matthew that Jesus said to his disciples, we are going to Jerusalem And it must be that I will be suffering at the hands of the scribes and chief priests and the Pharisees. And they will do all of this to me. And on the third day I will rise again. And you know, it's like our children sometimes. The disciples' ears stopped listening when Jesus said, on the third day I will rise again. All they heard was all the bad. And they were saying, no, that can't happen. And Jesus now comes on resurrection day, on the Lord's day. And he says, it was necessary for me to suffer, to rise again on the third day so that repentance and remission of sin can be preached in my name. And you are now witnesses to these things. Again, some of you may not know, but what is the Greek word for witness? Martyr. You're a martyr to these things, a witness of these things. Because we have the gospel given to us, the gospel that has saved us. And it was in earnest that Jesus suffered as he did in order to accomplish that atonement that was necessary for the forgiveness of all our sins. For that removal of that condemnation that was over us. Set your mind there. It was necessary for Jesus to be betrayed, to be mocked, to be rejected, to be scourged, to be crucified. Why? Why was that necessary? Well, there's a lot that could be said on it, but I just want to put it in, in, this, in this thought. That he was enduring these things both as God and as man in the image of God. And it was necessary for him to suffer as we understand in in respect of our salvation. It was necessary for him to suffer in bearing the full weight of the sinfulness of sin under the wrath of God. If he didn't suffer to that level, my friends, there is no atonement. He must suffer. So that the very wrath of God that stood against us because of our sinfulness and all of our sins. So that that penalty could be paid and we delivered. So that the wrath of God could be quenched against us. Remember that when you're suffering for his name. Thank God, though I'm suffering for Christ. It's not a suffering unto death, is it? It's a suffering unto life. 
Because I am in the sufferings of Christ that have redeemed me. But he also had to suffer to endure the evil and the malice of this world's sinfulness against God. We sometimes forget about that. He had to endure the evil and malice of this world's sinfulness of God, against God. And, and it was great and severe. And, and it met him at the greatest moment of his sufferings on the cross. Think again of how Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness. Can't you hear Satan tempting him on the cross? Where three times there as well he was challenged. Blasphemously, mocker, mockingly, and, and being reviled as, as God the Son. He, he heard at time after time after time those saying, If you are the Son of God, save yourself. But it was all this jeering and mocking and blasphemy. And he received it as Satan hurled all his vile hatred against his creator. Think on that. Jesus endured the vile hatred of Satan on the cross. And he received it all unto death as the righteous one. As part of the sealing of his grace to those who would come after him and follow in the imitation of Christ and suffer at the hands of this world. To be able to say to you, can you look to me now in all of my resurrection glory and see any shame with me? For all the shame that the world hurled at me, is any of that sticking to me? <laughs> I'll put it in, in that language. And the answer is what? No! All I see is glory. <laughs> you know what Jesus says to you? You will never, despite what the world thinks, it's hurling at you to shame you, to make you suffer. What does he say? He says, the glory I have for you doesn't even compare to that. It doesn't. He's won a glory for us. That is far greater. We, we will be in eternal glory. And, I, and I'm almost in that mindset of when we think on what we suffer, we're going to be looking back and say, I really didn't suffer. <laughs> that was nothing. You know, it's like that young child that throws the fit for something. And once they get what they were throwing the fit, they forget that they threw a fit. <laughs> The glory that's waiting for us. And Paul here, as he's encouraging the church in respect of this suffering, he says, you, you've become imitators of this. That verb there, imitators, is, is passive. They didn't go out looking for this suffering. It fell upon them. It's going to come. But you're... you're of the imitation of the church before you and more of the imitation of Christ. This is one of those cases, you know, I've always thought of uh, that 
that phrase, uh, imitation is what? The sincerest form of flattery. And uh, I always thought, what a strange thing to say, because what does the Bible tell us about flattery? That it's not necessarily a good thing. And imitation, being the sincerest form of flattery, doesn't work uh, today very much because we have issues like plagiarism, illegal copying, and cultural appropriation that scorn imitation. But in Christ, when it comes to suffering and seeing this occurring because of your union with Christ, my friends, it's glory. It's glory. It's not because you're doing something wrong. Because you belong to Christ. You belong to his body. So understand that with your, with your suffering. And the second thing we see with verse 15 is this experiencing of persecution. And here's where the word persecution is tied to, to death for Christ. Verse 15, how... Uh, how uh, the Lord Jesus was killed and the prophets were killed. They have persecuted us. They do not please God. Persecution. Experiencing persecution. I wonder if Paul here has in mind his own conduct before he was converted. Here was a man in all his Judaism who believed that he was serving the kingdom of God as he went out to persecute the church. In 1 Corinthians uh, 15, uh, verse 9, he speaks of this in a very lamenting way. It is something that I believe burdened him to his grave, how he attacked the church and how ashamed he was that he even put to death God's people in the name of God. That's why he calls himself the least of the apostles. And he sees it happening around him. Uh, in the current history, if you will, of, of the Israel where they killed the Lord Jesus. And in past history where Israel was responsible for the death of their own prophets. Isn't that strange? That you don't read of the nations around Israel killing the prophets of Israel. Read Israel killing her own prophets. And how do you look at this kind of opposition? Why does it seem good to God to see such persecution come upon his church? That's a hard question to answer. Why would God take one of the most eloquent men, so full of the Holy Spirit, who was sent to minister to many widows and have him lost to the church in its infancy. Doesn't seem wise to us, does it? But these things are, first of all, under the sovereignty of God. Persecution. Your persecution that you experience, however deep that level is, is under the sovereignty of God. Do you believe that? And if you don't, again, you're called to look back to Jesus. And look at Jesus' own death as Paul speaks about the countrymen killing their own Lord. Even as they did 
They're prophets. What do we read in Acts 2 about the death of the Lord? How he used lawless hands. Evil men. Evil men took and crucified the Lord. But they did it in accordance with what? The determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. It's God's plan. God's purpose. God's sovereignty. And and when you are facing and experiencing this hardness of persecution, what, what does the Lord tell you to remember? This is under his authority. John chapter 15, verse 20. Actually, I'll read verse 19, but first, if you were of the world... The world would love its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Again, God is using this to speak to your heart sovereignly. What kingdom do you belong to? (laughs) Is that resting assuredly in your heart? But he goes on to say, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, what? They will also persecute you. They will. Your union to Christ. And this is the Lord taking this kind of of opposition and again addressing to your own heart, you are a child of God. You are. United to Christ. You belong to God's kingdom. I heard this Friday night when I attended the service of formation of a new Presbyterian denomination in Canada. The Reformed Presbyterian Church of Canada. And the speaker was saying, you know, when we're going through hard times, one of the nice things to remember is that God is sovereign. And he said this exercise That was taught to him. He taught it to us. When you are undergoing trials, afflictions, any kind of hardship, suffering, persecution, whatever it is, stop in that moment and repeat ten times out loud, God, you are sovereign. God, you are sovereign. God, you are sovereign. He says... He went on to say, I haven't, I haven't done this yet, but he went on to say, I never make it to the tenth time because my heart is filled with the knowledge God is sovereign and I'm not afraid anymore. Joy replaces it. Where are our thoughts of God? God is over this. And even in persecuting times, God's power and ability, God's goodness that is at work in spite of evil. God is building his church. He is sovereign. And you know, it it shows us, because again, we think of persecution from that human perspective. Oh, we need this person. We need Christ more. Sometimes men are taken away in the wisdom of God so that we will learn that it's not upon men that we are depending to build the church. It's 
It's Christ. The sovereignty of God. The power of God. But also in that it's displeasing to God. God sees their persecution of his church and his people. And do you think that God takes pleasure in that? No. Know that this is displeasing to God. Their attempts to hinder the gospel, their holding of Christ in contempt, their opposition to God, it will be met by God. <laughs> but what we have to do is to guard how we respond to this. My readings this past week, I've read of the two occasions where David, being persecuted by King Saul, Fleeing from him had those two moments in that time when Saul came in the cave and when Saul and his army were sleeping, where he had that opportunity to get rid of his persecutor. And he had his whole army saying to him, look, the Lord has delivered your enemy into your hand. Now kill him and be rid of this persecutor. And both times David said, no. This is the Lord's anointed. I will leave it to God for him to decide the fate of this man who persecutes me. I will let God allow him either to die of an old age, to die in battle, to die of disease, whatever. His death is in God's hands, not mine. My friend, that takes courage and faith in God. And we're told that same thing in Romans 12, quoting again from the Psalms, where God says to us, do not repay evil with evil, but with good. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. Do you trust God? Do you believe God? Because as Paul is writing this, and Paul would write those words in Romans 12, be at peace as much as it lies within you. Be at peace with those who persecute you. Why? Because you don't know if that persecutor is going to be converted or not. And Paul's standing there as one who persecuted the church, who is now serving the kingdom of God. You don't know the sovereignty of God over these things. Trust him and behave as one who has faith in the Lord. And the very last point, verse 16, enduring suffering, experiencing persecution, engaging hatred. Here, Paul speaks about how uh, they have been forbidden to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved. And they're filling up the measure of their sins and wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. The contrariness, the hostility that these uh, opposing God are exercising against them, it revealed both their hatred of God and their hatred of men. They hate grace. They hate the only means of salvation from sin and death. They don't want people to be saved. (laughs) Boy, we live in that climate today. Some of you were not born at this time, but when 
Swiss Air 111 uh, crashed off the coast of Nova Scotia uh, over two decades ago. The then Prime Minister forbid that the name of Jesus should ever be echoed in any of the services mourning the death of all who are lost. That sentiment has become increasingly uh, before us in, in our current day. The level of that sentiment has increased. And it's now even in the church, the visible church of Christ. Some of you have belonged to churches that heralded the gospel and now it's silent. They're contrary to men. Oh, they think they're honoring people today with their acceptance and their affirmation of sin in their life. They are withholding the means for them to be delivered and redeemed and brought into the kingdom of God. And when you see that kind of hatred, rather than us standing up with our same level of anger and hatred against them, what does Paul say? Understand what's happening here from the hand of God. They are filling up the measure of their sins. That's this way of saying, Scripture uses this phrase a few times. That's God's way of saying that they are testing the limits of my forbearance against them. That there will be that day when they will become as Sodom and Gomorrah. They will become as Nineveh. They will become even as other cities that God has destroyed and they're no more. His wrath will come and meet them to the uttermost. Isn't that something? You know that word uttermost is used in one other place. Hebrews 7.25, when it speaks about our salvation, how we are saved from all our sins to the uttermost, that there is nothing that will ever prevent God's redeeming, glorifying grace to be completely fulfilled in us. Praise God. Here he uses it on the flip side to say, God's wrath against these will know no measure. The uttermost. And my friends, that's where we look at this and we see the very wrath that Jesus came to deliver from us from is what will meet them. And it is a fearful thing. Isn't it amazing that even there God holds out the whispers of grace. Blasphemy against Jesus Christ can be forgiven. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? So understand this. Don't despair. It's weighty. Opposition is a weighty thing to endure. My friends, the Lord is with us, keeping us. He has a glory waiting for us that does not compare to any. Remember your God. God is sovereign. Remember his wrath that waits for those who oppose you. And give these things to the Lord and he will carry you. He will strengthen you. Let's pray.